trust in God. My subject this morning is simply drop the stone. The passage we're going to read today from John chapter 8 is one of the most well-known in the Bible. It's very popular, especially even with those who don't know or follow Jesus. It's often quoted when they believe they're being judged and they want to kind of turn the judgment back on someone. They like to remind others that they are no better than, th than they are, so why are, do they feel they're in a position to judge? Kind of a who are you to judge me attitude. And it really simply reveals a defensive effort to deflect attention when we've done something wrong. And yet there are truly other more powerful lessons in this little passage. John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, beginning and reading in verse number 2. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in, the, caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, the woman who, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus down, uh, stooped down and wrote on the ground, with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one beginning from the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up, and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Drop the stone. It's good for us to gather the deeper meaning of this passage by first truly understanding the main players. It says that this woman was brought to Jesus by two groups of people, scribes and Pharisees. Now scribes were not just people who wrote things down. They tended to be teachers of the law, very much akin to lawyers in our present day, but the only law they were concerned with was the law of Moses. Pharisees were a different group of people. From the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament is about 400 years that had transpired. And in that time, as had been true in other moments of Israel's history, as they hadn't had a prophet come in such a long period of time, the overall moral tenor or moral feel of the nation had begun to drift. And they had begun to embrace God's moral, uh, God's moral law less and less. So this group arose up within them that was trying to bring Israel back into a group, a, a place of moral purity. And they would be very strict about the moral laws 
of Moses. <clears throat> and that group became the Pharisees. Now, in the beginning, they were basically focused on just being examples of moral purity to the nation of Israel. As time went by, 400 years, that moved from them becoming just this example to them becoming almost this political party, and it became less about moral purity and more about power. We need to understand also that the motivation behind this drama as an unfolding is not <clears throat> moral purity. <clears throat> they didn't bring this woman to Jesus because they had a love for the law of Moses or a love for God. They didn't bring her because they wanted to see Israel live in general a more moral life. They didn't bring her to Jesus because they were outraged and indignant that people within Israel would behave this way. The motivation here is clear in verse number six. They brought her to Jesus as a test. They brought her to Jesus as a trap. They were not happy with his rising influence in the nation. They were hoping to trap him in a no-win situation. Anyone ever felt like you were in a no-win situation? And here was the no-win situation they perceived. If he said to, her, to them, let her go, they would accuse him of having a lower opinion or even a disdain for the law of Moses. And if he said, well, the law of Moses says stone her, so stone her, they would have... Be the option to report him to the Roman Empire because even though they were under the law of Moses, under Roman law, they could not implement capital punishment. So they would either get him in trouble with the law of Moses or with the law of the Romans. Their motives were not spiritual. Their motives were political. They must have thought, we got him now. They did not know who they were dealing with. And the clearest indication of their motives not being pure and not for the love of the law is the fact that, yes, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, it says specifically, if someone is caught in the act of adultery, they are to be put to death. Can you imagine if we followed that today? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I hate to make the reference, but half of Washington would be gone. If not all of Washington would be gone. But let me get back on track. Except they misquoted Deuteronomy 22.22. It does not say if you find one caught. How many know if you catch someone in the act of something that involves two people? You've caught two people? And yet only one person is there. If they caught her in the act, one of the actors is missing. Now, not to contradict the Pharisees and the scribes in, in this passage, Deuteronomy 22.22 doesn't say that one who was caught in the act of adultery should be stoned. It says one should be put to death. In two verses later, it says if the woman who was caught is a betrothed virgin, then she was to be if, if, if she had been engaged to someone, then she was to be put to death. Clearly what this is, is a double standard, and the scribes and the Pharisees not only had no love for the law of Moses, they did not care 
about her. And a lesson here on this application of a double standard is that we need to be careful because the guy is missing. We really can't have a standard that suits our desires and another standard for those that don't meet our needs. We as Christians need to be people who have the same standard for everything and everyone. We can't have a standard for those we like and a standard for those we don't like. We can't have a standard for others and another standard for ourselves. It's the same standard for everyone. This whole idea of standards in Deuteronomy 25, where it writes in verse number 13, you shall not have in your bag different weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Over the years as I've been in leadership in different churches, I've had the opportunity to interact with a lot of business men and women who, who are Christians who run their own business. And sadly to say, one of the things they lament to me is when their customers are also Christians because all of a sudden they're expecting a different measure, a different weight. And the law of Moses was clear. Everybody should be treated the same way. Everybody should be getting the same benefit. No one should be treated differently. Like this woman was being treated differently than the man who had been part of this act as well. The concept here, especially in an agricultural society, is that you don't have one weight for those people who you like and a different weight for those who you don't. Weights that profit you should profit everybody. And we should be the same. If there's anything Christians should be known for is that we treat everybody the same. Everyone. Now, it's easiest thing in the world to treat those within the body of Christ with a little bit more compassion and a little bit more love than all those outside the body of Christ. But that's not a godly mindset. We need to have the same weight, the same standard for everyone. These leaders only saw this woman as a pawn in their plot to trap Jesus. They didn't see her as a person, as someone created in the image of Almighty God. Now, I want to be clear here. I need to be clear here. We stand against sin. We will always stand against sin. We will not bow to this shifting culture that seems to have a problem defining what is right and what is wrong. We will look we will not look on sin lightly. We will not declare that sin's no big deal. We will not look at things as if, eh, just let people do whatever they want and God will be okay with that. No, the Bible is clear about things that are right and things that are wrong. And what the Bible says is right, we will declare as right. And what the Bible says is wrong, we will declare as wrong. We will not look lightly on sin. We will show love and mercy 
to sinners. Because that's what all of us are too. Now the law required both parties, both actors, who were caught in the act to be put to death. As I said, someone's missing. Jesus' answer is priceless. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now going into the various parts of the original language, there are some nuances here that aren't always clear, which might have been, which definitely would have been clear to the crowd that was asking Jesus this question. The actual phrase there, let he who is without sin, basically cast the first stone, in the original language carries this connotation of not just he who is without sin, you can throw a stone first, but he who is without sin of this kind. Hmm. That made me think. How often do we, even within the body of Christ, get so angry and so emotional at the sins other people commit when they're sins we are doing ourselves? Truth is, the religious leaders could have handled this without getting Jesus' opinion. If they were following the law, they could have just simply followed the law and had her, they would have been able to put her to death, but had her condemned or ostracized. The specifics of the law with regard to this act that this woman was caught in did not require a meeting or debate. They required following the law of Moses. Now, Jesus does not condone her sin. Jesus' answer reveals the sin in the hearts of the people who are bringing this woman before him. His answer also reveals the lack of compassion that's in their hearts. His answer highlights their lack of understanding about something that we as Christians hopefully understand better than anybody else. Forgiveness. Aren't you glad you're forgiven? Do we really understand that we have been forgiven of our sins? So I want to talk about what Jesus didn't say when he made that statement. He is not saying that only sinless people can pass judgment. Otherwise, then there'd be nobody. He is not excusing adultery or any other sin by saying, well, nobody's perfect. Jesus demonstrated that wise and just judgment flows from honest motives, not from an attitude or a bias. Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of the witnesses against this woman that were just basically there to get him. He made the witnesses first before they were going to examine her, he wanted them to examine themselves. Jesus demonstrated the ability to confront sin while exercising compassion. And that requires the power of the Holy Spirit. Because sin calls for judgment. But church, that's why Jesus died. Sinners need compassion. That's why Jesus died. When we hear of people doing wrong, it should upset us because it's not the plan that God had for their lives. When we hear of people hurting other people, it should anger us. We shouldn't just pass blindly when we see someone being hurt. When we hear of people committing unspeakable things, it should shock us. 
of all the just emotions, of all the right emotions that should bubble up within us or rise to the surface when we see these things and look at a society that just can't seem to find any sense of a moral center. Whenever we see this, the emotions that rise up, many of them are just. But if one of the emotions that rises up within any Christian is a feeling of superiority, we've gone over the edge here. Because there isn't anybody doing anything horrific that, is, that we are better than. Because we are all the same at the foot of the cross. It shouldn't give us a feeling of superiority. A feeling that they are beneath us. Or that we are better than they are in some way. It is still true that our sins alone. Your sins and my sins alone. Are why Jesus went to the cross. Or why he died on Calvary. Why he suffered. For something he didn't do. When they heard Jesus' words, one by one, they leave. And I'm comforted by the order. Because I like to think that as you get older, you get smarter. I like to think that. It's not always true. But I like to think it. It's glad to know that you can still have some sense as we advance in years. Now, the natural inclination is someone being caught doing wrong is to pick up a stone. How could they do this? How could they violate the law this way? We instinctively grab a stone. And the truth is, they may deserve a stoning. But Jesus has a lesson for you and me here. That when we have these moments, and we're seeing a lot of them lately, it's not me. I didn't do it. I still didn't do it. I really didn't do it. We have seen so much in our world lately, especially as wars rage on in so many places, reports and video accounts of unspeakable things. And it is so easy in our emotions that are just emotions, as far as just reactions, to want to just pick up a stone in our hearts and just grit our teeth and have so much anger rise up within us. But I see in this passage that when those moments happen, when we have this tendency to look down upon people, that is a perfect opportunity for some self-examination. Examine our own motives. People can be so quick to bring the sins of others before the Lord. How often and how quick are we to bring our own sins before the Lord? So now the scene has changed drastically. It's just this woman and Jesus. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? I love that question. Because when she said no, he could have, if he had a sarcastic tendency, could have said, I'm still here. Because he's the perfect one. Are any still here? And she says, no, Lord, they're all gone. And then he says a phrase that I hope each one of you has heard and cherishes. 
neither do I condemn you. Church, you are not condemned today. Oh, there may be people in your life. There may be friends and family. There may be situations. Your stand for the Lord may get you to a place where others condemn you. But when you stand before the God who created you, when you stand before Jesus, you are not condemned. Amen. Haven't we all been so grateful for hearing that phrase deep within our spirit from the Lord? Your sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. We are not condemned. We cling to the passage where Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. You have been set free. Hallelujah. The Christian life is a life of the uncondemned, of the unjudged, and of the forgiven. And of the never to be condemned again. We've been set free. And that's where the world would love us to leave it. And that's where many in the church would like to leave it. But that's not where Jesus left it. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And then he finished the sentence. Don't do it again. Go and sin no more. You see, mercy is not blind. The best display of compassion is to help people recover from mistakes and help them not to repeat the same ones. And that starts, and the best way to not repeat the same mistakes is to identify them as mistakes. It is loving to remind someone, don't do it again. He's basically saying, I don't condemn you. Let's not have a repeat of this scene. Truly demonstrate that you understand mercy and forgiveness. And we demonstrate that by moving our lives in a different direction. Does that mean we will never trip up again? No. We will fall again. We all remain imperfect. But once the Lord's loving compassion has covered our lives, there is a difference. My motivation for life is not just to please myself. It's not just to please fleshly desires. It's not just to do whatever I want to do. My hope, my glory for each day, I didn't do it, is basically, Lord, whatever you want, whatever you want me to do, he told me long ago to preach the gospel, and I argued with him. I told him, Lord, you're crazy, and he didn't give up, and I'm going to preach the gospel. It doesn't matter how many devices beep behind me, I'm going to preach the gospel. I just don't want it to just, like, explode or something, <laughs> whatever it is. And I can be in that place because I've been set free. I can be in that place because I am not condemned, church. And neither are you. You all, well, many of you have heard my testimony. That God called me when I was 17, and I told him, God, you're nuts. You're completely nuts. And the motivation behind my statement was because growing up to that point, I stuttered a lot. And the idea of God asking someone to preach for a living who stuttered, I found cruel. 
and not very nice. And so I decided I would go in a different direction. I was a Christian, faithful to my church, involved in many different ministries, except the one God called me to. So at the ripe old advanced age of 30, when I figured, well, now I was too old to go into ministry, and that's when he reminded me that Jesus was 30 when he went into ministry. And I commented, yeah, but he only was there three years. What are you telling me? And that's when I began this journey. And so many have commented that they like the sound of my voice or to hear me talk and that you speak so eloquently. And I thank you for that. But it is all the Holy Spirit. Every, every syllable is the Holy Spirit. And it's not to brag, but the point of that lesson in my life is that when anyone thinks that I'm a naturally gifted speaker, they're wrong. I'm a supernaturally gifted speaker. <laughs> it's the power of the Holy Ghost, which means since he's no respecter of persons, you can be a supernaturally gifted whatever he decides he wants you to be. Because you've been set free. Because you're not condemned. You see, as a kid who stuttered, I remembered the comments of grade school kids whenever I would speak in class. So the last thing I wanted to do was to get in front of people on a regular basis and speak. But God has his ways. And I can assure you, God should get all the glory. God has set you free. God set this woman free. And one of the things we've been set free from is this tendency that when something like these, these things go wrong and we get so incensed to pick up stones. But we're, we're wanting to pick up stones and throw them at people who are just like us. People who are made in the image of God, they're just lost. They're just broken in many ways. They're hurting. They need Jesus like you and I once needed Jesus. So my advice today from this lesson, among the many that are here, not having double standards, remembering that we're not condemned, is when those things arise, my friends, drop the stone and pick up and embrace his love and compassion. I'll close with this. I've already spoken on it because we got past that portion in the Gospel of John. But we remember the passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Pretty big miracle. But the passage is just after Jesus finds out that his cousin John the Baptist has been beheaded. And it says right after he found out, he had retired to a, a quiet place. Because this was his cousin, and Jesus was human, and he was hurting. And yet when he saw the crowd following, the scriptures say in all four gospels, he had compassion on them. That's, that's godly compassion. That even in the midst of your own pain, that you can extend that to others. That's what we can do with the Holy Spirit working in our lives. I'm going to beat that thing <laughs> whenever I find it. I just don't know what it is. Well, I think I know what it is, but I'll deal with it later. But <laughs> see, I'm going to drop the stone.
<laughs> I'm not going to beat it. I'm going to pray for it right now. <laughs> I'm... No, you can't make this up. Whatever it is in your life. We're now entering a season where we're getting together with family. It's the holidays. Thanksgiving's less than two weeks away. Sorry for reminding you of that. And then right after that, the Christmas decorations have been up in the stores for weeks. And we're going to get together with family and friends. In many cases, family, we don't see but once or twice a year. And as I've shared, we get together with them once or twice a year and are reminded why we don't get together with them but once or twice a year. But we're going to get together and conversations and old conversations can rise and we get to a place where we can want to pick up stones. Drop them. Extend the love of God that's in your heart. Extend what God has done for you. Has he been good to you? Has he shown you how special you are? Has he let you know you're precious even on days when you're a pain in the neck? I know that's never true for any of you. We're thinking about other people now. But even on those days, you're precious to him. Let's extend that to others this holiday season. And let them know 